I had to reckon with all of that. And as that was happening, as my body was thankfully, I'm so appreciative and grateful now, but thankfully saving me and saving itself by being like, she's starving, she's in famine, let's let's slow the metabolism, let's hold on to some fat. Like we can never let her do this again. She can't have a period, she can't have a baby, we need to save her. Like that's basically where my body was going and what it was saying. And that looked like my six pack going away. And that looked like my ass coming back. And that looked like my body changing from what I thought I it, it should be because I could get it down to this place. And then it changing back and changing in new ways created a lot of shame, absolutely, because I was like, oh my goodness, like it's me. I don't have enough willpower. I'm not strong enough. And this is how diet culture gets you, everybody, because like if diets, like if Weight Watchers and fitness personalities that are selling you shakes and programs and other diet gurus and coaches who are trying to sell you weight loss, if they can make you think it's you and it's your fault and you don't have enough willpower and it's your problem and you're the broken one. And if you just tried harder, did it better, ate less, worked out more, then you'd get it and they can make you feel like you're wrong. They can keep selling a product. That was Lou Yurick. And you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 130. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm super thrilled that you're listening in today, and I want to take a minute right here at the top to share some gratitude and then to share an exciting update. So first, seriously, thanks for listening to this show. Thanks for valuing honest conversations. Thanks for being open to hearing from guests whose lived experiences and opinions might be different from your own. That's hugely important. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking a minute or two to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. That's such a huge help in spreading the word and in helping new people find us. So thank you so much for doing that. The show currently has 233 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I would love to get to 500 by the end of the year. So thank you for helping with that if you have a minute to jump on and leave a rating or review. And more than anything, thanks so much for supporting and funding this show on Patreon. Together, we've built a truly community-funded podcast with no ads or corporate sponsorship, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before, which I'm really excited about. So in a few minutes, I'm going to introduce you to today's wonderful guest. But first, in case you're new to this show, I'd love to just quickly explain what we do here. At the heart of it, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers, and I can't give you a miraculous 10-day six-step life hack plan for anything. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, honestly, I'm so over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too. Perhaps that's why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, money, sex, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which means that we often use adult language, so fair warning on that, but we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when that's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, like I said, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. 
The show is and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. And now for that quick update that I said that I'm excited to share. Over on Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show, because that's my vision for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with, and it'll hopefully continue to grow over time as the community grows and obviously then the funding grows with it. But higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities who are generously spending a few hours of their time with me, a white straight cis woman, to share their lives and stories with our majority white audience. Being able to pay all of our guests has been a dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work that they do, especially creative work, that means that it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. And believe me, it's not. So just know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide. When you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. It's a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series, where I share my real life in real time. Oh man, if you think it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait until you start getting my emails. (laughs) Plus you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for real talk live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, a different organization each season. Uh, Past organizations include Black Lives Matter and the Venture Out Project, so you can feel awesome about that aspect of your contribution as well. When you head over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels that you can choose from, an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Lou Yurick. Lou is a certified eating psychology coach, body image mentor, and life coach. She helps clients worldwide to grow in self-awareness, find food freedom, and practice body love. She hosts the Untamed podcast, and she's written for various publications on the topics of disordered eating recovery, personal development, and body image. In this episode, Lou tells the personal story of her disordered eating, which eventually led her to the powerful work that she's doing today. We talk about shame, about the oppressive nature of dieting, beauty, and fitness ideals, why you might still be dieting, even if you think you aren't, plus the reasoning behind some of her favorite advice to change your clothes instead of your body. We talk about other things as well, like parenting, marriage, especially what it was like for her to get married quite young, her religious upbringing, how she learned to question what she's been taught, and lots more. 
Lou is such a kind, wonderful person and an honest, no BS storyteller. And it was such a treat to finally have her on the show. I hope that you love this episode as much as I do. So all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we're rolling. Lou, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Nicole. Set the scene for me. Where are you sitting right now? Oh, (laughs) it's not glamorous. I am sitting in my parents' laundry room slash my dad's office. It's all one little room. And I'm living at my parents' house right now because my husband and I and our three kids have been displaced because we're building a house where our old house used to be, which means there was nowhere for us to go in the interim. So living at mom and dad's at 35 years old with a family of five, a dog, a cat, and my two parents and sitting in their laundry room right now. The thing that sticks out for me the most thats from what you just said is to have an office that's also a laundry room. That is an interesting experience, I'm sure, for your dad. (laughs) (laughs) It's big. I mean, it's pretty big. There's there's a built-in desk and built-in shelving, but there's also a washer and dryer in here. So, yep. That's so funny. What does your dad do? My dad right now, he is a supervisor of a township. So he does, he's in public local government. Okay. All right. See, look at all these things already in the first couple of minutes that I did not know about you. I love it. The setting the scene thing has become like my new favorite question because it's so, I mean, obviously I would love to be able to record in person, which is very rarely possible, but it gives kind of a good picture for me of, okay, like I'm in my like little home office with a mug of lavender Earl Grey tea and what's left of this huge gloopy green smoothie. And now I know that you're sitting in this laundry room office. It's pretty fun. I like it. Yep. There And honestly, there's a Mr. Potato Head staring at me. My, I just thought it's on my dad's shelf. I don't know why it's here, but it's staring at me right now while I talk to you as well. So it's you and me and Mr. Potato Head. Yep. It's good. I love it. I know my um, my home office has um, like glass French doors on it that we, because there were no doors on it when we moved in. And uh, oftentimes when I'm recording, my cats will sit outside the glass and just stare at me, but they're not allowed in here while I'm recording because they can't be chill. <laughs> like all over everything and pulling the wires and just being like horrible little terrors. And so they sit outside and they stare at me like, why won't you let me in? (laughs) I'm anticipating this for my new house too, because that's for my office. I have double glass French doors, same thing. So I bet my cat will be out there and she's loud. So if she's talking. Yeah, that will happen. That will happen for me too with our cats. And then eventually they just give up and they're like, oh, right, this bitch isn't going to let me in. So so this is probably going to seem like a really strange first topic to discuss. But every time that I see that you've dyed your hair a fun new color, you have great hair, by the way, I'm convinced that I want to do the same, but I've never done it. I've never had fun colored hair. So do you remember the first time that you decided, cool, I'm going to dye my hair this awesome color? Oh, I re- yeah, I remember the first time I decided I was going to dye my hair. And if I really knew then what I knew now, I may not have ever started dyeing my hair, to be honest, because there was a lot of ageism involved in it. I was in my early 20s and I st- I started going gray pretty early around my widow's peaks. And so I was just like, oh my goodness, I can't do that. I can't have gray hair. That's awful. You know, it, at the time I I've changed so much and evolved so much. Thankfully, we continue to do that for all of our lives. But at the time, back in my early 20s, it was about not wanting to have gray hair. Oh, my goodness. And then the funny thing is I've since literally purposefully dyed my hair silver. So (laughs) I've come quite a different way. 
but, and I have a little girl who was hoping and hoping and wishing and praying that she would have gray hair. Cause she always thought that looked really cool. So my now 10 year old, almost 11 year old always wanted gray hair when she was a little kid and then got her wish. Cause she had a stray gray hair when she was about seven years old. And here I was earlier than that going, Oh, I can't have a gray hair. So that's what started me wanting to dye it. And then as far as all the fun colors and different haircuts and never really being able to stick with something. That's because in general, I tend to be somebody who like goes hard and fast and decides something and goes all in. And then it's like, oh, okay, cool. I did that. What's next. And so with my hair, it's the same kind of thing. And I'm not picky about it. Like, I'm not like, oh, we could never do that. So I really just kind of go in and talk to my stylist and I'm like, what do you want to do? Or I kind of had this idea. What do you think? And she'll let me know. And then we just, we do something. So if, if you stylists that I've had who just want me to make a decision, we don't work out really well. Cause I'm more like, what do you want to do? Just do it to my hair. That's fine. <laughs> and then just seeing what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's so, so much in there that I can relate to, especially the like going hard and fast and doing the thing and then being done with the thing. It's actually funny that I haven't done that much creative stuff to my hair because I'm the exact same way in almost every single other area. I'm like, change. Can we change? Can we grow more? Can we, can we do it harder? Um, but yeah, I am, uh, have had, the start of the gray hairs for a while. And now they are just in full swing all in one. They all come from like one central area, right? So I'm maybe going to have the like reverse Cruella DeVille thing soon. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm not dying it and have just decided no. to let it grow. Although I wish they were just like regular hairs. They're all like weird and wiry and sticking up in all kinds of directions. <laughs> Can't you just be like yeah. a normal hair and also be gray? <laughs> Yeah, I know. I pretty much love it now. And I even posted on Instagram story, like, look at all my grays. You know, uh, I don't hide them. I wear my hair back in ponytails most days and just let them go. But I also have since really discovered I love changing my hair color, my hairstyle. I get bored pretty easily. And it's a really great way to keep me excited and occupied. Yeah, I think for me, the there's some ways in which I'm really, really low maintenance and hair stuff is one of them. And every time, like one of my best friends, I've told her, I'm like, you can't let me cut my hair again. Like, please remind me that I don't want short hair. I think I want short hair and then I want it for the two seconds that someone else blow dries it for me. I'm not going to blow dry it. All I want is for my hair to be long enough that I can like put it in a killer side braid. Like, that's it. That's all I want. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've been thinking lately um, about sort of the things we're talking about, the hair stuff, also with tattoos and stuff as potentially one way of practicing body autonomy and like individuality. Has that been a factor for you at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have, as you know, I have a ton of tattoos and it was so liberating for me to get my first one. I come from a background, I live in a pretty conservative religious area and I'm relatively rebellious (laughs) when it comes to, to this area and uh, beliefs and values here. And some of them, sure, I hold tightly to and can find common ground on. But for a lot of things, I, I just, I always felt like I wanted to break out or push back against judgments and misconceptions and preconceived ideas. And so when I got my first tattoo, it felt so liberating to be like, oh yeah, I've done that. And then they just kept getting bigger and further down my arm or in more visible areas. And now like I have one on my hand, which you cannot hide unless you wear gloves, which I don't wear gloves. So I, you know, I'm always, no matter where I go, if I'm totally like dressed with a sweater and covered up, you're still going to see my hand tattoo. And you're still going to have to reckon with the fact that I have these tattoos. I am 
you know, in this area, I will say there's a lot of judgments and I'm sure it's not just there, this area. There's many areas in our world and, and in our country where the idea of tattoos are, is synonymous with so many things that it's not like uh, being uneducated or being dirty or whatever. I don't, I don't even know because I, I usually tend to just block those judgments out and those ideas that people have about, about tattoos, about body size, which is something I work with all of the time or ways of eating or ways of moving. But certainly with tattoos, I've had to rub up against the idea of people looking at me and going, Oh, like you're talking to it. You're expecting these things of us. You're talking to us. For instance, I, one thing I always think about with my tattoos is I have a daughter who has intellectual disabilities, medical needs, and I'm constantly advocating for her in the school system and in the, in public, getting her the rights that she deserves and she should freely have, but people so often overlook. And there's a lot of double takes that happen when I walk up. I'm always the t-shirt and jeans girl, usually wearing sneakers, almost always wearing black with my huge sleeve and my arms completely covered in tattoos. And I'm like, hi, let's talk about the Americans with Disabilities Act. And then I'll go off <laughs> in all of these areas. And people don't know how to take me because of those misconceptions and preconceived ideas. And so it, it was really liberating when I got my first tattoo. And the more and more I get, the more liberating and exciting it becomes. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you were always, I think, I think you used the word rebellious before, but um, was that who you were as a kid? It's interesting because I do use the word rebellious, but I, I don't view myself as someone who purposefully like goes against the grain or doesn't follow the rules, but I'm, I'm definitely somebody who thinks critically and questions. And that's taken more time in certain areas than others for me to get to that point of really peeling back the masks and, and looking and thinking critically. But I've just always been somebody who really acted and moved and operated from this deeper intuitive sense of myself and knowing, and that in quite often rubbed up against a lot of the standard methods and protocols for how to do things or how a a young girl should act or what a young girl should be interested in or into as a kid. I can think about that. And even now, you know, in my thirties going, okay, like I, I'm not purposefully trying to be rebellious, but I just don't have that desire or even that inclination that automatic response of like, well, what should I do? Like, what am I supposed to do here? I'm very much more like, what do I feel? And how do I act on that? And so that's how I show up, which kind of rubs against the grain a lot of time. Mm -hmm. I find I can relate a lot to what you're saying. um, But if I'm really honest, I think that I have an easier time of that in certain areas than others. Like it's easier to be less approval seeking or less people pleasing. Not that I really struggle with the people pleasing thing, but definitely approval seeking in certain areas than others. So I'm wondering what for you has been the most challenging area of your life to get to that place where it's, okay, I'm not going to worry about what I should do and just do, you know, what intuitively feels right for me. What's been kind of the hardest thing to grapple with in that regard? Oh, there's so many of them because I think we always have to call our intuition and our preferences into question of which ones have been uh, created and heavily influenced by society and culture to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I, I, so I can find myself quite often being like, okay, I think this is my preference or I think this is where my intuition is heading, but let me stop for a moment and try to think how much of this is actually socially dictated. How much of this has been constructed by a culture and environment, family, community that I've been a part of. And so I've just naturally thought 
this is the way things should be, ought to be, I should be. So I, I tend to be somebody who's a deep thinker and gets pretty introspective about these things. So there's probably not much that I haven't had to wrestle with at, at not many areas, I would say. I do think I still, it, again, it is being an advocate for my children uh, and, and I'm an advocate for all three of them and two of them in, I think, more prominent ways. I have a son who's black and I have a daughter who is disabled. And the two of them really deserve and require a ton of advocacy. And that is where I constantly have to toe the line between just like coming in guns blazing, like not giving a fuck, and then coming in like trying to be kind, cordial, reserved, and appropriate to get the results I want in, in one way or another for my children in a, you know, you get what I'm saying? Like, yeah, totally. like I could, I could just like burn the whole thing down in multiple times in multiple cases and situations and scenarios for my children, but burning the whole thing down tends to backfire and just leaves them st- still ostracized, still without people tiptoeing around. And so I think that area advocacy for my children in particular has been a place where I always am constantly trying to be like, okay, be good, but also be you. <laughs> and they might not be the same. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's been tough for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's having to look at the ways in which even if you hate the system or feel like a lot of the system is problematic that like, okay, you do still have to work within it. And especially if you're not talking just about you, but you're talking about your kids that it's, it's not as easy as like you said, just like, just burn it down. (laughs) You know, like that sounds good in theory. And also I think is not always realistic. True. Um, so I'm interested in what you were saying about being someone who thinks critically, especially about, um, is this how I actually feel? Is this how I've been socially conditioned to feel? And sort of like making those decisions for yourself, which makes me want to pivot a little bit and talk about marriage, if that's cool, because you've been married for how long now? Almost 13 years. Okay, yeah. So like a significant period yeah. of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so was getting married something that you had always wanted? Like, was that an important milestone and value for you? And I'm just kind of interested on the the thinking critically piece that went into for you deciding to get married. Hmm. This is a good question. And I really like it. I think there's a lot of cultural uh, community based bent towards getting married and getting married young. I mean, I got, I got married when I was, I think I was 21, 22. So I got married pretty young and I, I grew up, like I said, and I, I, and I still live in a conservative Christian uh, religious area. And so a lot of those values, and and I grew up in the Mennonite church, which is wild now (laughs) to think about. And that I value many things about my upbringing, certainly about my family and the values that they have shared and, and taught me. But I do think, yeah, like getting married and getting married young was like, which is one of those things you did. And I actually had somebody, cause my husband and I didn't, didn't have like the perfect fairy tale uh, road to marriage for sure. And I had when we had broken up, we'd been engaged and broken up. Actually, there was a, a woman who was at the gym at my college and she would, she was an, she an elderly lady, but she would always come to the gym and say hi to like all the college girls that were on the ellipticals. And I was one of them. And so we kind of built this little rapport over time. And when she found out that Ken and I had broken off our engagement, 
she was like, well, you better find someone soon because if you leave college without a husband, you don't know when you'll ever find one was kind of like her view. (laughs) I still remember her saying that. And I, and, and I really like kind of stricken, like, oh my gosh, what should I do? You know, what's going to happen now? I remember being like, is she right? What will become of me? You know, and, uh, that's, you know, not what happened, but I do remember that. So I do think there's that cultural piece and that community piece to like get married and get married young and marriage is just something that you do. And, uh, even the whole idea of like not having sex till marriage was something that I was raised with and something that this community, uh, around me is very vocal about in a lot of areas. And so, so yeah, like there was a lot of that cultural side of it, community and environmental factors that led into me going, yeah, this is just the next step. This is what you do. I will say though, my relationship with my husband, my marriage with my husband, he is my absolute best friend. We're really, really great partners and teammates equals. He always says he was a feminist before me and he's right. And, uh, I, I so enjoy him and love partnering with him in life that, you know, it turned out pretty good for me, but I could never lie and say that like, no, that like our, there weren't influences outside of just the two of us and our love and partnership that led us to marry so young, because I definitely think we had no idea what we were in for. And, and luckily the two of us were two people who really grew and matured and evolved together. And some people grow and mature and evolve and they're, they don't do that together. And as they mature, and as they become more of who they are and who they're meant to be, it means that they aren't together anymore. Mm-hmm. But for the two of us, we've, we actually continue to remark on the fact that our, our marriage, our relationship has just gotten stronger and stronger and more cohesive over time, which we know isn't the case for everybody and doesn't have to be the case for everybody. So uh, it's been awesome and I love it. But yeah, certainly we had no idea what we were getting into in our early 20s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can imagine. So what would you say is your secret weapon? Like, what do you two do really well in your partnership? I think what we do really well in our partnership is we're honest with each other and we always try to look at, at things as if we are two people on the same side coming at a common problem, a common enemy, a common dilemma. So instead of like him against me, or me against him, it's really us against the world, us against whatever is kind of in our lane that we need to work on. So, and and the other thing that we try really hard to do is we try as hard as we can not to judge the other person's intentions. So, you know, it's easy to see what how, how somebody makes me feel. Like if we were in an argument and he said something to me, I would know exactly how that made me feel. I would know how I perceived it, but I don't want to get into his head and pretend I have any idea why he said it or where he was coming from. I can ask him. I can say, is this what you meant? This is how it made me feel. But not judging each other's intentions is super important for the two of us to actually move through conflict and dilemmas and little bumps in the road without becoming each other's enemy. Yeah, it's so easy to make up stories about the other person's intentions. Yeah, Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's, I mean, that's great advice. Um, and then I guess like on the flip side, what would you say is something that's been a reoccurring challenge or struggle for you two? Like what's something that like comes up again and again, essentially? <laughs> I think this is easy. The thing that comes up again and again is I am a, like, like I told you before, like fast and dirty, like let's do this. And that's how I am when it comes to disagreement. That's how it, I am when it comes to like, a problem to be solved. I'm like, let's nail it. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out what we're going to do and let's act on it. 
And my husband is someone who needs some time to think. He's more pensive than me, and it takes him longer to be able to articulate his thoughts and therefore it takes him longer to communicate. It's not that he won't communicate or that he doesn't want to communicate, but it takes him a lot longer to communicate in a way that he finds true and honest. And whereas with me, I'm like, everything I say is honest and true at the time. <laughs> if I need to take it back, I'll take it back. Like <laughs> I, I just say it. And so that has been something we continue to work on with each other for sure. Yeah. That's always an interesting thing when your communication styles are different. What you just described is very similar to um, Paul and I, that uh, <laughs> especially to when it comes to change, like I, change is my comfort zone. I'm very comfortable with change. And it sounds like maybe that's something you're also comfortable with. And yeah. he's quite slow to change. And, quite, and like some, we definitely wind up butting heads about, you know, we have one conversation and I'm ready to go from like A to Z. And he's like, can we go to B first? Like, is that possible? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's interesting, especially now knowing um, that you got married so young, if you could go back, what advice would you give yourself on your wedding day? And then maybe what advice would you give yourself after five years of marriage? Because I'm almost at the five-year point. So that's a selfish mm. question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, the advice I was going to say I'd give myself isn't that isn't that deep, but my husband knows this. Uh, I I would tell myself not to change my last name. But there's that. So because no one knows how to pronounce it, if they know how to pronounce it and or have heard it pronounced, they certainly don't know how to spell my last name. It has been so annoying to me. And at one point, my business is is named Lou Eats. And at one point, I just looked at Ken and I was like, let's just both change our last names to Eats and be done with it. <laughs> like, let's just do it. Uh, because like no one ever spells our last name right in our children, you know. And and again, there's no reason for me to need to have needed to take his last name. Uh, I, I, that was just another, Oh, this is just what you do sort of situation instance in my life. And it's not that I hate it or resent it or dislike it really in any way. It's just like, I'm like, it was useless. I didn't need to go from my dad's last name to my husband's last name. That's not what I'm about or what I believe it, what I believe in, excuse me. But yeah, so that was going to be my simple little piece of advice, but a, a deeper piece of advice would just be what I had already said is, is remember you're on the same team mm -hmm. because, uh, that is something that we had to learn the hard way. We had to learn that by not being on the same team as often the first year or two of marriage. And, uh, the other question you asked me was what, um, Oh, just like if the advice would change, let's say five years into marriage, if you could okay. go back to that time. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, five years into marriage, I think something that was really important for us was to keep keep open the lines of communication and trust each other to evolve together. Because I think sometimes one person could feel a certain way, could be questioning something, could want to go in a certain direction and be afraid to open up and share and ask and be curious and really dig into those deeper, maybe harder conversations. But I know for my husband and I, we've, we, for whatever reason, and I don't, I don't necessarily even give the credit to us. It feels something mystical and magical beyond us. We really are so streamlined in our curiosities and in our questions and the way that we evolve and think critically about things that there were times when we held back, worried we'd disappoint the other person or upset the other person or 
hinder them and their desires. And, but when we had the communications and when we, when we talked about it and we had the conversations, it ended up being so useful to us. So just keeping those lines of communication open and trusting that the other person wants what's best for you and wants your evolution alongside of, and at the same time as their own, that's been really useful for us. And I think over time, that's been more and more important. Mm -hmm. It's helpful. I think to hear you reiterate, um, like what you said before about growing and changing in the same ways. And I think that, I don't know, and this I think extends just beyond marriage too, but I've been thinking about this too, that we're really constantly growing and changing. And like you said, following curiosities and maybe becoming new versions of ourselves. And that doesn't mean like overnight transformation, but I think we're all on some kind of growth path when it comes to what we're interested in career-wise, what our values are, you know, how we want to live our life, spend our time, spend our energy, that kind of thing. And it's like, I think it's interesting that in our culture, that longevity tends to be the marker of success of a relationship. Like, oh, we've been friends since second grade, or we've been married for 30 years or whatever. And sure, if that works out, and that's been good for that many years, or more good than bad for that many years, but that's not necessarily a reason. Like I see people in friendships and careers and other things, like really kind of suppressing their own growth and change in order to keep the peace in order to not have to separate, you know, or leave that whatever that thing is behind. And I don't, I don't even know that I have a question here, but what you just said made me like reflect on that again, that it's awesome when you can grow and change in the same ways as other people. And also sometimes that's not always the case. And that doesn't mean don't give yourself permission to change. Right. And it doesn't mean don't communicate about it because maybe you're not going to grow and change in the same way or in the same direction or have the same questions and curiosities as your partner, but maybe they'll still celebrate you on your path and maybe you can celebrate them on theirs. Maybe they can somehow support or encourage you, whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. But if you don't talk about it, there ends up being a lot of shame and secrecy around it, which is never good for any relationship to kind of keep those things bottled up. And certainly if resentment then comes into play because we don't evolve the way we want to. We don't ask the questions we want to. We don't have the experiences we want to have. Well, then if you're resenting your partner because you feel like you've had to stifle yourself because of them or for their protection, that's not going to be good on the relationship either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point. Um, so pivoting slightly, I'm really grateful that you said yes to this invitation, especially since I know that you've been turning down some other requests lately, taking some uh, breaks from social media. I'd love for you to talk mm -hmm. a little bit about um, kind of where you're at in that regard. I'm always interested in hearing people talk about things in real time, especially if there isn't like a pretty bow tied around something. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about where you're at. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And you know, I love how all these conversations kind of flow together because even as we were talking about change and, and evolving and growing as, as people, and you and I both saying at different parts of this conversation already, like we like change and we like to just get in there and do it and then move on. And that is how I am wired and it's taken time, but it's been good time for me to celebrate that and just go with the flow of like, oh, it's okay. I don't feel like being on social media right now. That's fine. My newsletter hasn't heard from me in four months. That's cool. Like better that than to be inauthentic and and look at them and look at my community on social media or look at anybody as a chore or an obligation because then I'm not going to give them the level of of content and insight and love and honesty that I want to and they're going to feel it. So I'm very much at this point in my life like what you see is what you get. I'll be super honest with you. I'll also hold some things closely like I don't share everything. Uh certainly keep a lot of things to myself to respect the privacy of others around me. 
Uh, but when it comes to me, there's really nothing I won't share. Certainly, especially for in-person, one-on-one, or in conversation together, I tend to talk too much, as maybe your listeners are already hearing. But yeah, I right now is a, a season where <laughs> it's interesting how similar you and I are listening. Like I, my husband and I have always planned to build a home. He actually is a partner in a home building company. We have a daughter who I've already discussed has disabilities that will require long-term care. So we are looking at taking care of her and creating a living space for her to have dignity and autonomy, but still be within reach of us and within having that supervision and care that she needs. And the home that we were living in, which actually it was my childhood home. We had, we bought it from my parents when I was, when our kids were, our two daughters were younger, our son wasn't home yet. And that house just was not conducive to creating a space for our daughter long-term and creating the space that we wanted for our family and knowing, again, that my husband obviously had the resources and and the ability to say, okay, well, let's build a house. I'm a partner in a home building company. I've got this. We, we've been talking about it for a while, but hadn't actually been like, let's do this. And of course, I'm the one who just on a whim one day was like, wait, why aren't we doing it now? Like, why are we waiting till this time or till that specific financial point or till this specific date on the calendar? And I really just started questioning our whys and our reasons for things. And then going like, maybe now is a good time. And I was the one who was like, let's think about this. Here's the facts. Like I, I am very free spirited, but I'm also like a major data junkie. So I would create Excel spreadsheets of like, and this is what could happen. And this is what the interest rate could be. And this is how it could all work out. And I started doing that. And sure enough, within a couple months, we're like, we're doing this, we're building a house. And then it got pushed forward again, because my parents who are so generously letting us all live with them, were like, well, wouldn't you rather do it, you know, at this time period, maybe get the kids in the new house before the new school year starts and kind of had started planting some seeds in our minds of like doing it even earlier. So here I am like all of a sudden in, in January, we're like, well, we're going to get out of the house in three months. We're going to knock it down. We're going to build a new house on the same property and this is happening. So that's kind of, I'm still in the throes of that. I feel we're living with my parents. Now our house was knocked down on April 9th. We got to see that happen and that was my childhood home. So it was really bittersweet, but it's exciting to see my parents live next door to that property. So we're getting to see our new house build, you know, before our eyes. And for anyone who's interested in stuff like that, I'm total geek about it. I made my own little Instagram account <laughs> just for our house. And it's really for us and our family to be able to see it. But if anyone's interested, you can kind of see what it, our house used to look like and what it's looking like now. Uh, that's I've been obsessed with it. You always ask your the people on your call, on your, uh, interviews, like what's one thing you're obsessed with? And I'm like, oh gosh, I have nothing to say but my house. If she asked me this question, because my house is really what I've been thinking about a lot, dreaming about a lot in terms of making that space conducive for our family and also what we can do for our extended community and other families we know that are in need with this space. And we're two people that always, my husband and I are like a house is meant to be lived in. And so we want it to be lived in. And that's been exciting for us, but it's been a little emotional, trying, taxing, tolling to have packed everything up, moved it into storage. Again, I'm saying all this, knowing how privileged we are to have, first of all, be owning property, owning a house, knocking it down, doing all of this. But uh, it felt like important to, to say that. But um, yeah, it's still been exhausting with three kids who all have their own 
diverse needs and are in school and dance and extracurriculars like that. And uh, I mean, we've even got some weird rashes and parasitic mites thrown into the mix that, that at my fun. parents' house that we had to deal with. Oh, yeah. So basically, all that to say, like, we were checked out. Yeah, I think – what do I think? I think this sounds probably pretty cliche, what I'm about to say, but that this reminder of what you're speaking to, that we can't do all of the things at the same time, <laughs> like, obviously, of course, but uh, it makes a lot of sense that if you're packing up a family of five and, like, moving out of your house and moving in with, you know, family for as close as you might be and as good of relationships as you might have with your parents, like, that's still a shift. There's always, like, family of origin stuff that comes up, right? And, like, doing that and also working and, you know, with your kids, all this, like, it makes sense to take a break and say, you know, no to more podcast invitations or take breaks from social media. I don't know. Like, I think it's really problematic how often we sort of expect ourselves to be robots and just like, well, just do the things no matter what the external circumstances are. And like, that's just not realistic. No, it's not. And that's why I, I got, I mean, I teach this to my clients all the time, just the idea of considering themselves, their time, their bandwidth sacred and being able to say no and being able to say yes with full conviction that it's what's best for you. And if it's not what's best for you and you discover that somewhere along the path, being able to speak up then. And I have to take my own advice. I don't just make it up. It's not just fluff to you know have a, a coaching session with a client. It really is how, how I live and what I believe. And so for me, as all this transition was happening, there were things I left open-handed so for instance, my podcast, I was like, could I maybe record from my parents' house and like do this thing still? Sure. We'll see. Uh, certainly when it came to my one-on-one -on -one clients that I have and that I continue to bring on, that's something that I prioritize because it's my absolute favorite part of my job. My favorite part of my job is working one-on-one -on -one with women to help them through places and spaces in their life where they need more freedom and liberation. Many of them that's around food and body, but anywhere, relationships, work, uh, self self image and self awareness all of those things i work on with women and that's what i love to do so i wanted to know i wanted to make sure i had space for that and then certainly space for myself and for me to feel like a full and functioning human means i need time alone it means i need time with some people sometimes <laughs> in certain contexts and it means that i need time in nature and moving and and laughing and being free and autonomous and me and then I need space for my family and my children and the responsibilities and honors that I have in that place. And I knew all of that. And so when I just didn't feel like I had the energy to be on Instagram for a week or two weeks, I just wasn't. And when I didn't feel like I had the energy to write a blog post for months, I just didn't. And that's certainly there can be some guilt, especially in the, in the online coaching space that I'm in. There's a lot of like... Oh, there's just a lot of gimmicks and crap and push and hustle and all of the stuff that I don't particularly resonate with. Because again, I'm very much of the like, do it when you have the passion for it, trust yourself, be intuitive, it'll all be okay. If it's not okay, something else will be okay. That's kind of the way I approach life. And so that's what I've done here with, uh, with just these major changes that are happening that are good changes. Like you said, like they're beautiful changes They're I have relatively, I have wonderful relationship with my parents, 
But of course, yeah, those things come up, just all living in confined space together. I mean, two of my kids are sleeping in my parents' dining room that we've turned into a bedroom. So it's it's like tight and it's okay. And it's actually been really fun and something I know we'll look back on and appreciate, but it has meant that I needed more margin, more time to just really tune into those simple, like <laughs> easy coping strategies that I like and that, that keep me, you know, not quite so focused on what's hard and what's difficult about this transition and can, can maybe distract me a little bit, maybe numb me a little bit, maybe give me a little bit of joy in a healthy way and a, in a loving way and a compassionate way for myself, of course, but that's, what's been important. And, and for me to show up and be honest and say, I haven't been around because I've needed more margin is the best thing I can do for an audience that is usually probably following me because they have been so, so uptight and so particular about the way that society has told them they should show up, be, eat, move, look that like for me to say like, Oh, if you need margin, take it, I'm taking it. Oh, like if, if you don't want to be in those relationships anymore, don't be in them. It's okay. Things evolve. Like for me to actually live that out and express that is probably the best thing I can do instead of showing up every day just to have content or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. And yet, and you spoke to this a couple minutes ago, the struggle sometimes of taking your own advice is very real. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Oh, like it's it's it so easy to tell someone what to do or to think like, logically, like this, is, I know that the best path is, you know, X or whatever. And then when you actually are in the position of having to do it, it's like, fuck, this is hard. Oh, my gosh. Listen, I, I was like, am I really going to say this? I like, I knew this was probably going to come out on your podcast and I was, I'm still currently just waffling back and forth as I'm about to say it. But I, I have never had to take my advice so much as living here with my parents. And I alluded to it very quickly in the string of things I said that were going on. But one of my children contracted scabies. Mama, that's me contracted scabies while living at my parents' house, two of the seven of us Two of the seven humans living here had scabies. Scabies are awful. If anyone, any of the listeners, you, whoever have ever had them, like, you know, we are now in a family forever of people who know exactly what it's like to have them. And it's mortifying and it's scary. And this all happened here in this place. And, and never, ever have I had to take my own advice on body image and on self-acceptance and, and relaxing into what is and, and trusting in uncertain times than when my body was overrun by these little critters that you could not see that were making me miserable, that I was afraid I would never be able to get rid of and on my children's body and potentially everywhere else in this place. And I was like, could have gone wild about it. I could have just gotten all up in my head and just lived in constant fear and frustration. And I certainly had my moments, but I even, I mean, I even related to some of my clients on the fact that they were talking about like not being able to fit into to their jeans or feeling weird about, you know, their legs or something. And, and while that may not be something I could relate to anymore, like at all, because of the place I am with body acceptance in terms of, of my size and my weight and my structure and, and who I am and how I show up in the world. Certainly when you have a rash all over your entire body that you're not used to having and you're itchy and you're uncomfortable and also everyone can see it, you've got to deal with a little bit of body acceptance and work through some of those same things that I so easily and off the cuff can advise my clients. And it was good. It was a good lesson in, like you said, like practicing what you preach, 
doing what you teach and, and showing up and actually doing the work that we're so often asking of others. Mm, that's so well said. I'm really grateful that you shared that little honest piece of what's going on, because what you're speaking to is this idea of how uncomfortable it is to find and have to confront the limits of your own values, right? Like that this, like for you to say, oh, I totally have a handle on self-acceptance and body image when it comes to weight, size, you know, those are the type of things I know we're going to talk about your work and kind of your background story in that. But it's like, and then you can think, okay, like check the box, like check this area of my life is like totally under control. And then (laughs) it's like something you never would have considered, how does my body acceptance issue come up when it's a rash or when it's something, right? That it's like, oh, interesting. Does my self-compassion extend far enough to cover this? And every time we have to go through one of those things, it's like that cycle of self-compassion or like the circle of self-compassion like does extend wider and wider. And it's, I don't know, I always like in kind of like a dark humor way, I'm like, well, yeah, of course this is the thing that's going to come up because I like thought I had this totally handled. And now this is coming up for me a lot in terms of, you know, I say that I really value honesty and having hard conversations when it would be just as easy not to, right? And then, and I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast and in the community, you know, my husband and I are going through some interesting conversations about our relationship structure, me being interested Mm in in non-monogamy and him not being interested in that. And like, it's having to take my own advice. Like, this is very uncomfortable to talk about. Having the, the some of the conversations we've had, I like want to crawl out of my skin and die, right? It's like, okay, well, you say that you want to have honest conversations, but are you only willing to do that like within your comfort zone? Or it's just an interesting thing where you're sort of pushing yourself to do what you like, be the person who you say that you want to be. And sometimes we fall short of that. Like, and that's true for me for sure. And then to have to grapple with that, like, oh, interesting. I would have hoped that I reacted, you know, this way. And actually I didn't, huh? Okay. (laughs) Like what now? You know? Absolutely. So um, this actually could be a good entry point into starting to talk about your work as an eating psychology coach, body image mentor. And to kick that conversation off, since we are in the month of June, I want to ask you what you would like to say to someone listening who's having thoughts of going on yet another diet this summer. (laughs) You mean besides don't do it, run as far away as you can for going on another diet. Yeah, of course, everyone's looking for that quote unquote bikini body right now, whatever that is. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I absolutely, I want, I want diet culture to stop being good for my business because the, here's the truth. The truth is people who go on, on diets January 1st and people who go on diets for their quote unquote summer body, many of them will be coming to find me or a practitioner like me in a couple of months. And that's the unfortunate part of, of diet culture that I, that I cannot stand and that I, I'm, I will happily transition my business to the other places that I take it with my coaching and, and mentoring around relationships and, and work and life coaching and get away from this stuff. If diet culture would just end, I would be so happy because for somebody right now, who's like, yes, I'm going to go, I need to go on a diet. I need to, to, to lose whatever amount of weight or I need to be in, in whatever size. The first thing I'm going to say is it's not going to fix whatever's ailing you because whatever is bothering you is not actually your size. It's not actually your weight. It's what you think those things mean about you, what you're, what you are perceiving they mean about you from what society, community, culture, family, environment is telling you it means about you. And when you lose those 10 pounds or you get into that 
particular size. It's not going to be enough. You're not going to be enough. There's going to be more. There's always more hoops to jump through just as a matter of understanding self and why we do these things. It's not going to work to make you feel better about yourself. Additionally, scientifically, biologically, it's not going to work long-term anyway. If you have short-term success with diets, many people who are first time or early or still in the beginning years and stages of dieting and uh, restriction might feel like they have early supposed success with diets. It's a really real thing. And there's a lot of scientific and physiological reasons why that is, but long-term that diets have not been proven to work the way people want them to work, which is that they sustain and maintain a certain level of weight loss, a certain body size, a certain change. And so for somebody who is wanting to put in all of the time, all of the effort, all of the self-hate and criticism and energy and pain of restricting their food, overworking their bodies and hating themselves, I would say, why not put all of that energy and all of that time and all of those resources into just having the best possible summer you can have and enjoying yourself and finding places and spaces and communities and experiences that are going to light you up from the inside out. Mm -hmm. I love that. Will you share your personal story of what led you into this work? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'll try to make it brief because it's really long. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Whatever but, your um, sort of nutshell you know, version. Yeah. 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 There's And there's glimpses of it on my website and in other podcasts that I've been interviewed on. I've shared about my story. But essentially, I had a really great relationship with food in my body most of my life. And all of the pivotal moments of when people tend to kind of turn into a place or space where they're like, uh, restricted around food or questioning their body or, or having negative body image, I kind of sailed right through uh, puberty and going to college and living on my own and getting married and wedding dress shopping and even having having children. I have one birth child. My other two are adopted and, and pregnancy and all of that. I still was like, oh yeah, this is my body. This is cool. This is the food I eat, whatever it is. I'm really not particular about it in any certain way in terms of diet restriction, deprivation really moved my body in quite intuitive ways. It was never an over-exerciser, but loved to be active and move and enjoy, enjoy doing different things in my body, experiencing different things in my body. And I didn't end up having an issue with restriction and uh, until some family medical crises happened. So again, my daughter, who I've talked about a few times, part of, of what her syndrome is, she has a genetic deletion and, and she has epilepsy and some other health conditions that were involved. And then my husband, who is like my partner in crime and life and everything, was for five months, which, which felt like a really long time at the time in our mid-20s, was at Johns Hopkins, which is one of the best places to be in this case. But he had a mass in his pancreas that uh, we could not determine whether or not it was cancer. And so here I am thinking like, I have a husband with pancreatic cancer. I have a daughter who will need lifelong support. Uh, I am a mother to another young child and have another one on the way through adoption. And like, what is this life? And so I, I turned to, I turned to restriction, dieting, body control, body hate as a way to distract and numb from the real trauma that was really going on and ended up just creating more trauma for myself. And within months, I had developed, because of the the extreme change and extreme amount of restriction and overwork that I had put my body in, I 
I really, my health declined quite quickly. I lost my period within three months of, of starting to deprive myself and, and overexercise and didn't get it back for years. And I was in the full throes of binge eating disorder within six months and really struggling to, uh, to know myself, my body, uh, my old relationship with food that was so good was felt so foreign to me. And that's kind of where I, I came from having this experience as an adult in my twenties, but having such a long history of feeling good in my body, I knew I needed help pretty quickly and mm-hmm. uh, pretty quickly, you know, relatively speaking. So it took a couple years for me to be like, this is not right. I cannot fix this on my own. I'm trying. Something feels very wrong. Why do I feel like so caught up in my head, so obsessed and just overwhelmed and hyper-focused on food and body. I'd never been that way. I knew there was something deeper going on that was both, you know, physiological, but also emotional and and mental. And so I tried to do all the like self-help things and like take care of myself and find blog posts and listen to podcasts. And it wasn't until I hired a coach of my own to walk me through uh, disordered eating and body image issues that I was having that I really came out on the other side of it quite empowered and really and opened up to a whole area of of oppression and a whole area of stigmatization and pain that people were going through that I really just never even knew existed because I had lived most of my life in an average body being conventionally attractive and um, able-bodied and not not being an oppressed person in a society who judges people and criticizes people based on their size who a society that doesn't even that doesn't even create space for people outside of certain parameters mm-hmm. and so and so I I just I, that had really almost flown over my head I of course I I had always been someone who's like don't make fun of you don't make fun of somebody's body we don't talk about people's body size or the way that they look or the way that they function I'd always been somebody who who just really didn't I wanted everyone to have their autonomy and be themselves, and I felt like they should be able to do that peacefully without judgment. But I still didn't have a grasp at all on how deeply rooted the systems of oppression of diet culture were, how much our every area of our community is really, you know, there's there's every area of our community has these components of diet culture in it almost, you know, where, where we're facing it all the time. And I just got to skate right by because mm-hmm. I was in an average size body living a life that people weren't co- constantly judging me, criticizing me, not creating clothes that fit me, not creating spaces that helped me to move around freely. So I didn't even know that this existed until I did. And once I did, I wanted to like put it on blast. And I wanted to help any woman who had ever felt the way I felt and many women who have felt the way I felt for much longer and much stronger with, you know, many more impacts and negative consequences than what I had even experienced. I just wanted to help. And so it was from that place and, and through my own healing that I was like, I want to do this. Like, I, I think I, I could and I think I'd be good at it and I want to. And so just like I told you hard and fast, I was like, OK, I'm getting certified I'm going to get training here on eating psychology and mind-body nutrition and, the, and those connections, and I'm going to mentor with people, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to open a practice, and that's exactly what I did. And so now here I am, having done this for years and feeling like there's nowhere else I'd rather be, nothing else I'd rather do, because the work is so rewarding one-on-one with the women that I'm just so lucky to have 
have in my life and to be able to partner with to help them get through these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I'm curious, you said during those couple of years, it took you to realize, hey, I actually do need to get some help. Something's wrong. Can you talk about the role that shame played in in your experience? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really can. Um, a nice shame, late question, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just so, well, it's so important to talk about shame because it's it's really it's a catalyst for a lot of things in our society on purpose. Um, but shame, shame played a huge role in me staying quiet as long as I did. And shame is something I'm super familiar with anyway. Again, having just alluded to it in other conversation that we've had growing up in a religious conservatism and knowing that, and again, I have to say my family never pushed those values, but I would, this area that I live in did and has, and certainly communities and spaces that I voluntarily put myself into as a young adult did a really great job of, of, of preaching no shame while also like constantly shaming people (laughs) for being, doing, saying, thinking something outside of the parameters of what was considered good, pure, or decent. And so shame was something I, I was pretty familiar with. And certainly body shame, right? Especially in in religious settings too. It's like, well, at least where I uh, where I had come from is this idea of women having to please their husbands, of being like being there for the the male gaze, and then also the idea of like, but but not too much, and not in certain settings because you don't want to make somebody another man stumble or like lust after you or look at you longingly, you know, it was like all of these like ideas about like this bot, like your body not being yours and yet being responsible for it and how to do all of that, which of course create shame around the body. So certainly I think there was those underlying ideas that were permeating when I, when I found value in like, Oh, look, I'm doing this thing. I'm forgetting that my life is falling apart everywhere else with my my daughter and her medical needs and my husband and his medical needs. But like, at least I have a six pack. Like that's kind of where I was. And well, because six packs are sought after and and that would be great. And and so then as, as like, obviously, I don't know that we'll get into the science of all of this, but I'm telling you listeners, there's science there. The fact that these things can't be maintained, the results you get in the beginning of restriction and dieting and overexercising are not, will not for most people, there's probably like a subset of one or 2%. And that's actually a biological, I don't want to say error, but like that's an outlier, a biological outlier. But most people will gain the weight back that they lost dieting and over-exercising and forcing and manipulating their body. They'll usually gain it back plus some. There'll be a new composition of fat to muscle. These things aren't sustainable. These six packs are not sustainable when, when pursued in a, in this sort of way. Uh, and, and so that's kind of like, I had to reckon, I had to reckon with all of that. And as that was happening, as my body was thankfully, I'm so appreciative and grateful now, but thankfully saving me and saving itself by being like, she's starving. She's in famine. Let's, let's slow the metabolism. Let's hold on to some fat. Like we can never let her do this again. She can't have a period. She can't have a baby. We need to save her. Like that's basically where my body was going and what it was saying. And that looked like my six pack going away. And that looked like my ass coming back. And that looked like my body changing from what I thought I, it it should be because I could get it down to this place and then it changing back 
and changing in new ways created a lot of shame. Absolutely. Because I was like, oh my goodness, like it's me. I don't have enough willpower. I'm not strong enough. And this is how diet culture gets you everybody. Because like if diets, like if Weight Watchers and fitness personalities that are selling you shakes and programs and other diet gurus and coaches who are trying to sell you weight loss, if they can make you think it's you and it's your fault and you don't have enough willpower and it's your problem and you're the broken one. And if you just tried harder, did it better, ate less, worked out more, then you'd get it. And they can make you feel like you're wrong. They can keep selling a product, a failing product to return customers who think they're the problem and they're the failure and not the product. And so there's a lot of shame involved in that. We're so embarrassed that we have not been able to do the thing that diet culture and, and the diet industry tells us that we can do, that we just double down and try harder. <laughs> and our body, when it's working optimally, will push back and take care of us to keep us alive, to keep us thriving, to keep our organs functioning and everything, hopefully moving in a direction of operating the way it should be. And so we deal with shame because we see these changes and, and it's a direct reflection of us. And so, of course, yes, then then when another another normal component and normal result of under eating and over exercising is binging and eating huge amounts of food in one setting or feeling out of control while eating food. Uh, maybe it's not a huge amount, but um, maybe you feel out of control and sort of like primal when you're doing it. And that's a really natural response to restriction and, and over exercising. But that too creates a lot of shame because like nobody wants to talk about binge eating. Like nobody wants to be like, oh yeah, like, and for me, it was always economy size bag of chocolate chips or huge economy tubs of peanut butter. Like I could down those things in, um, I want to say seconds. It really wasn't seconds, but minutes less than an hour, they'd be gone. I didn't want to talk about that. That mm -hmm. that's like so embarrassing, so shameful. And so of course I kept all of that to myself. Um, eventually I did share it with my husband, like what was going on. And he was just surprised and, and like, it just, <laughs> I don't think he knew what to do. He, he did great in terms of the way that he cared for me and responded uh, to me in that time. But he had no idea until he did that I was like eating loaves of buttered bread while he was at work and then would come home and feel completely sick and like couldn't barely lift myself off of, off of the couch to like get upstairs to go lay in bed because I felt so full and in pain because I was primally eating in response to deprivation. And, and so, yeah, there's a lot of shame and embarrassment in that and feeling out of control. And that stops you from getting help because you just don't, you think no one else will understand. It must only be you. And if I can say anything to any listener who's resonating with restriction, dieting, yo-yo dieting, over-exercising, deprivation, or binge eating, or feeling out of control around food, it's that it's not just you. It's a large part of our population and community these days who are experiencing these things because diet culture is such a large part of our world and our society and has been so heavily a part of, of the systems at play in our culture that there is a large amount of people who are experiencing exactly what you are. And there's a lot of people who can help. And so I'm glad I eventually did ask for help. And one of the things that helped to lift shame for me was, was getting online, was going on Instagram and the internet and seeing that there were people posting blogs and content about their own experience with these same things I was having and knowing I wasn't alone. And then to work with somebody who could walk me through it from a place of personal experience, but also professionalism 
in coaching and, and transformation was really useful to me. Yeah, getting to that place of, okay, I'm not alone. And what if there's nothing wrong with me, I think is such a powerful counter to shame. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because as soon as and I, I will often tell people, when you speak up, shame shuts up. Because as soon as we speak up, there's always someone else who's saying me too. Or like, oh, well, like I, well, here's how I experienced that. Like, as soon as we're able to say out loud to, to one person, to even to ourselves at first, but to a stranger, to a friend, to an acquaintance, to a, a family member, if, if we just say out loud just one time what we're going through, sure enough, there's going to be somebody who comes along immediately or shortly thereafter and says, me too. And then shame dissipates because we realize we aren't alone. But until we are able to articulate or speak up about what we're going through, we really live in this in this place of, of feeling, yeah, completely isolated. Mm -hmm. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately, and this is going to sound dramatic, and I don't necessarily mean it that way, because I do think that it's true. I've been thinking how often we're only one conversation away from changing our lives. And it doesn't mean that it happens mm. overnight, right? Like, let's say the first person, if it was your husband or the first person that you told that this was going on, that you needed help. It's not like, okay, well, then in 24 hours, everything's like hearts and stars and unicorns, right? Like, it's obviously the beginning of a long process. And that could be true for so many things. But it at least like pivots you like two degrees or five degrees in that other direction that then is going to be like the start of something else. And I think so often we feel like incredibly overwhelmed or daunted by the task ahead, whatever that is, whether that's getting help for mental health, whether that's leaving a toxic relationship or, you know, wanting to transition careers or any of the things. It's like one honest conversation with one person is often the best, best, best place to start. And like, cause once you've had the conversation, once you've said it out loud, once someone else has borne witness to this thing that's going on, it's like, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, right? Which is scary. <laughs> yeah. And also really great because once you said, you know, what essentially probably amounted to a couple of sentences to your husband, you couldn't unsay it. He couldn't unknow it. And then like something has to happen from there. And I think that's often one of the reasons that we stay quiet about things. Cause we know, the power of telling the truth. And so it's like being able to give yourself the gift of one honest conversation. I've just, I don't know. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Oh yeah, absolutely. I always tell my clients, uh, you know, it's from chicken little, but I'm always like, just do the thing and the sky won't fall. Like, just trust me, just do the thing. The sky won't fall. You you'll live and you'll realize you can do it again if you want, or you can change it and you can observe what happened and make, make some modifications, but do the thing and you'll live. And sometimes that's all we have to do is just step out and realize that what we're afraid of on the other side of like coming clean, speaking up, sharing what we're going through, making a change, what we're afraid of isn't bound to happen. And if it does happen, we'll probably still make it. Yeah. And even if it does happen at some point, it happening is still probably a, a less bad option than, you know, sitting in shame. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said something, I think it was on Instagram a while ago that I loved and wanted you to talk about um, your advice to change your clothes and not your body. Will you talk about that? Oh, yes. I love this topic because it's so easy and so simple and so many people overlook it. But then it's kind of like what you said, like once the toothpaste out of the tube, you can't put it back. Like once you actually start living and realizing some of these things, the matrix that we're in, it's like, oh, okay. Okay. So yeah, this is dumb. Like this is really ridiculous. So just the idea of, of, and I usually will often relate it to the, to the difference between, I know some people have like 
are embarrassed about their feet, but it's a much smaller subset than the amount of people who are embarrassed about their body and ashamed of their body. But I'll often relate it to shoes and shoe size because I, I find that a lot of my clients are like, I'll just point blank ask them and I'll ask anybody, you know, who comes to me with an issue about clothing size and their their body weight and how they need to change to get into this or that, or the clothes didn't fit them. Now their life and day is horrible. And those are such relatable feelings. And I don't want to diminish them because I've first of all lived them. And I work with women every day who experience those thoughts and feelings and they're real and they are certainly created and encouraged and supported by our culture and our society. And so I get it. But at the same time, I'll often just ask like, so let's say you walk into a shoe store and you try on shoes and they're just so tight. And like the top of your feet is spilling out over these pumps. And like, it just looks strange and feels strange. It's pinching you. It's putting a, like a, it's rubbing a mark into the top of your foot. It's like so uncomfortable. What are you going to do? And like, everyone's going to say, Oh, I just asked for the next size. If I really like the shoes, I'll ask for the next size or I'll get a dip, try on a different shoe and see how that feels. Great. Most people don't walk away from like having to buy a different style shoe or a different size of shoe, having to upsize or downsize, feeling any differently about their worth or value as a person. But we take this to clothing size and it's like the world is over. I am an, I'm a horrible person. I've suddenly become all the things that we think and say in our, in our society about people in larger bodies, which is like, I've suddenly become lazy, unmotivated, uh, undesirable, you know, all the most ridiculous ideas that we have about people who are in larger bodies. We heap on ourselves when a pair of jeans just don't fit or our bodies changed in some way that a shirt doesn't look right on us that we've put on from our closet anymore. And we can call bullshit on it when we realize that like, oh, if my shoes didn't fit, I wouldn't feel this way. Who's put all the energy into the, the clothing being this idea, clothing being this indicator of who I am as a person and of my worth? And is it true? I always have my clients just ask that question, follow up, whatever you're fe- freaking out about, whatever ideas are popping up into your head with like, is that true? Like, who says it's true? Why is it true? Is it true for everyone? Is it true across the board, across different socioeconomic settings and different lifestyles? Is it true across genders and identities? Like, is it true? Or does someone just say it's true and now I've kind of like adopted it as the truth for me in my life too? And with clothing size, it's just one of those things. Like people get so bent out of shape about it that they want to go on a diet, stop eating, start working out a billion hours a day, like do all of these things to change their body instead of going, instead of saying like, like I, I, my hope for my clients, my hope for listeners is that instead of saying like, my body is wrong, my body is not right. My body needs to be fixed. We can just say, oh, these clothes are not right for my body. I'll change my clothes. Like, it's such a simple concept, but <laughs> yeah, so good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really, that's something I advise so often is just like, just change your clothes, just change your clothes, get, get clothes that fit you, that fit your style, that fit the level of comfort you want to have that fit the life that you live and the activities that you do. Just get clothes that fit all around and start living life in them and see if you don't feel a hundred times better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Without ever having to like not eat a carb or whatever people are doing. So that brings up something else that I would love to talk about this idea when you said like without having to not eat a carb or, you know, the things that fall under what I would 
say, our more conventional diets. I'm interested, mm-hmm. and I'm sure this has come up either with you personally or with people that you work with, this I this space between, so let's say you've ditched, you know, conventional diets. You're not following like a capital P program, right? And you've like right. moved on from that. But this space where like you've ditched conventional diets, but are still actually dieting, like sort of like the hidden mm-hmm. ways that dieting is still prevalent, if that makes sense. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. There's tons of those. And I actually... Uh, on my website, I know recently, I shouldn't say recently, uh, months ago, I'm pretty sure I even wrote a blog post about you're probably, it's called you're probably still dieting. And it's all these like pseudo diets and ways that we continue to restrict and be like, oh, but I'm not like on paleo, I'm not paleo or like I'm not um, on like high fat, low carb or whatever these different diet. I'm not doing whole 30. So I'm not dieting, but really we're still dieting because we're still looking at our relationship, not our relationship, but like our interactions with food, our food experiences as indicators of our worth, of our value, of our goodness, our purity, our acceptability. And those can be like, there are so many different examples of like pseudo diets, like don't eat snacks in front of my partner diet. Like that, like if we are feeling ashamed to actually eat what we want when we want to eat it because someone else is looking at us, we're still on some kind of diet. We're still restricting or um, have to order the same meal as everyone else that's out with me. If everyone's ordering ordering a salad, I'm ordering a salad. If they get the fries, I guess I can too. That is a diet because you're not coming from this place of intuition and autonomy and body wisdom and actual relationship to your very individual self to be able to make decisions. You're still looking outside of yourself for direction. And that's when I'll often have to like draw those lines with my clients of getting them to really inspect when they're looking outside of themselves to know what to do with their food or with their body. And sometimes they hate me because I will never tell them. Like I will never, I will never tell you. If anyone is looking to work with me, please know upfront because you will get less mad at me when we're working together. I will never tell you what to eat, when to eat, how to eat, how much to eat, how to work out, when to work out, when not to work out. I will make suggestions to you based on the information that you give me of things to experiment with. And I will always leave it up to you to do with what do what resonates most with you, really check in with your intentions and then double back, look at the impact and see what really makes sense for you and your life. But it's about curiosity and it's about being autonomous and growing in a relationship with yourself and your body. And so anytime you're looking somewhere else to tell you, like if you're looking at a clock and you can't eat past 7 p.m., you're on a diet. Like, I don't care. I don't care if you've eaten cookies all day. If at 7 p.m., if at 7 p.m. comes and you refuse to eat, even if you're hungry, you're dieting. Like, that's that's just where it is. And we get stuck in this space a lot. And diets are super elusive because people are catching on to the fact that, like, diet's, like, a not a good word to use. And these things aren't – nobody wants to – how do I say this? People definitely still want to be on diets, but nobody wants to be known as the person who's on a diet. Yeah. It's like become less like culturally acceptable. Even if you look at like, I mean, obviously I'm sure we could have a whole other conversation about like the, the a lot of the bullshit about the health and wellness industry. And that's come up on this right. show in the past, but that, okay, like dieting is no longer an effective marketing tool. So it's like, then it becomes like more subversive and more, you know, like, but it's, it's all still selling the same thing. It's just in a different outfit. Yeah, absolutely. And it all comes down to, again, like thinking that there are best practices for eating that we need to adhere to, rules that we need to adhere to, and then judging ourselves because that's what, okay, so if we don't follow the rules, then we've fallen off the wagon and there's shame and there's blame and there might not be this real 
fully named wagon that we've jumped on, but we've still jumped on the wagon of the idea that we don't eat past 7 p.m. or we only have carbs after a workout or whatever these ideas are that people come up with. And so, I mean, anything that's going to make you feel unhinged, volatile around food, uh, that's going to make you feel deprived, restricted in a rule-based relationship, a moralistic relationship with food and exercise is a diet. And and those people get stuck on those a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it's not only are, are some of those so common, but a lot of them are really socially rewarded. Absolutely. Oh yeah. And, and talked about all of the time and every, every event place space you go, I, I even doing what I do and people knowing what I do for a living that everyone's still always coming to me talking about their diet and I don't want to hear about it. But I, you know, unless we're working together and I am here helping you being a partner with you, being a major fangirl of you and your evolution and your healing and your growth, like I'm not interested in knowing that so-and-so is on this diet and they've lost five pounds. Like, and, and I'll constantly be like, come back and talk to me in two to five years. Like, mm-hmm. let me know how the person's doing on that thing in two to five years because, yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not something that I want to talk about, but as a culture and as a society, it's still something that we very much value and want to talk about. And certainly when it comes to the idea of health uh, and being diets, being this quote unquote healthy thing, they're not healthy, but being a healthy thing to do and, and even kind of idolizing and prioritizing health, which is ridiculous. It's, it's just as ridiculous to me as the idea of idolizing and prioritizing weight loss, because it's just as elusive. Like health is, there are certainly things we can do as individuals when we are in relationship with our bodies, we can know and understand them and know what helps us feel and function our best. And that's what I'm always telling my clients. They probably get sick of me, but my constant, my constant like little buzz in their ear is what makes you feel and function your best? How do you want to feel and function today? Like, let's experiment with that. Let's tap into that. Let's explore what that might be because we don't know. And it could change every day because our bodies are always changing. Our environments and our circumstances are always changing. So I'll always talk about feel and function. And certainly we can do those things to give us the best possible opportunity to feel the way we want to feel and function the way we want to function in our bodies. But at the end of the day, like health is not within our control. It's just not. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. I want to circle back to two words that you mentioned a little bit ago. You were talking about curiosity and experimentation, and I'm interested to hear how you see those two qualities as potential tools for healing when it comes to um, like body image and getting out of dieting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are the tools I would say for healing. If anybody who has who claims to have like a system, a format rules to follow a clear guideline or outline for how people should get beyond disordered eating, disordered exercise, negative body image. They're really selling another, they're really selling another system where somebody has to leave themselves and leave their autonomy, their own personal wisdom, their own intuition, and refer to someone else for how they should live, operate, and act. And it might not be a diet, but it's certainly a system of living where the person is no less free, no less liberated, no less autonomous and empowered. And so for me, um, what I love to share with, and what I love to encourage is experimenting so that, so that it's not me telling my clients, here's these best practices, and this is what works. And this is exactly what you do on this day at this time to get out of this situation with food and body. I'm very much more looking at 
what their life looks like, what they're thinking and feeling and who's with them and what their circumstances are, their environment. And then we're coming up together with some ways to experiment with their relationship with food and body so that they can be, I often will tell my clients and I had an anthropologist as a client. So this was funny, but I'm always like, just be like your own anthropologist. Like you're studying you, your activity, the way you show up in the world, how you function and how you operate and feel and all those little parts and pieces of you and your existence. You study that and experiment with that. And once you learn something, Take that into the account the next time you show up at the table, the next time you have an eating experience or want to move your body. So you can just use these experiments, these, these questions, these curiosities, these things you're doing, not because someone's told you it's exactly what's right and you'll get this exact result and you are good if you do this, 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 and this, and you're cheating or bad if you do that. No, like none of that anymore. What if we lived life with a question mark? instead of an exclamation point or a period, like what if we just were curious and wondered and asked what if a lot and asked, is that true a lot? And asked and said, maybe a lot, and then explored from that place. And a lot of, uh, that's, that's most of the work I do is helping my clients to explore and experiment so that when they leave, they have a very personal connection to themselves and their bodies. They know what makes them tick. They know what triggers them and what, what they need and when they need it. And when they don't, they at least know how to start pursuing those answers by again, just being curious, just being open, just taking what I will always say is the next right step for them and learning from it and then going from there for the next step. So it's really just this incremental curiosity that can help them let go of this rule-based, systematic, meticulous thinking that is exactly what diet culture is. So it's Mm -hmm. just a totally different spirit towards relating to themselves and their bodies, but it's a healing one. Yeah, I I think so too. I also think that, you know, curiosity and experimentation are two things that it's easy to say, oh, that sounds simple, or that sounds like an easy pivot to make. And yet, if we look at, and obviously people were raised differently, but on the whole, so much of the way that we are raised, or I know at least like the way that I was raised, it is a system of following different rules, like whether those are the rules that your parents set out for you, the rules in like a traditional education system where, you know, you have to do, you know, X, Y, and Z in order to get approval, to get love, to get praise, to get, you know, whatever the end results are. And that's true in school. It's true in, you know, the bodies that we're supposed to have. It's true in even when you were talking about sort of the views of the conservative religious culture that you grew up in of, you know, this is how you're supposed to present yourself sexually or like there's just rules, right? Like whether they're spoken or unspoken. And we get so conditioned into that, like giving our power away in that regard, that not only is it empowering, I think, from what you're describing to step into a place of curiosity and experimentation. But I also think that the reason that it's tougher to do than maybe it might seem is because that's really quite new for a lot of folks. And like, I've definitely gone through this myself of it feels really scary to not have a roadmap because we are under the often false assumption that a roadmap will keep us safe, right? If I just do these six things, then I will get this end result. And sometimes it's a false assumption, but sometimes it's not. Like there are really tight boxes that our, you know, patriarchal, capitalistic, heteronormative, you know, would like list off the things that there are very clear ways to get approval and to have those like traditional markers of success. And so to be willing to be like, okay, I'm going to put this down and stop following these rules. And like, what if I actually did get curious? Like, I remember this is a tiny, tiny example and like less pivotal than the other things that we're talking about, but 
It was some years ago, and I realized that I didn't know how to have fun. I was like, what do I find fun? Like, what brings me joy? And I had no answers. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Like, why don't I start to pay attention to maybe like, what's pleasure? What makes me feel like these questions I had never asked myself to the point where I had no answers even because you're so used to following other people's rules. And I don't know, that's a little bit soapboxy, I guess. But I love that you're speaking to this and also sort of wanted to underscore what I hear coming out and what you're saying too, which is like, these things are great. And also, you know, for anyone listening, don't beat yourself up if this thing that sounds simple, curiosity and experimentation is actually quite hard at the beginning. Yeah, it is hard. And that's why, that's why for a lot of us, we, we need or would benefit from support when we're doing it because it is hard. And we are constantly going to confront this idea of like, okay, well, first of all, you're right in the sense that there is safety, there is currency, there is privilege and power in following rules, especially the rules created by the systems at play in our, in our society. So there certainly is currency there. There's benefit there to us living an easier, more, uh, just, what do I want to say? Less, less frustrating, difficult life. If we just follow, if we just color in the lines, but that actually doesn't mean it's going to be fulfilling life or Mm -hmm. a life at all. You know, it it actually, it really doesn't mean it will be a life at all if it's not really ours and we're living by the rules and, and the means of, of someone else for their benefit and to continue to keep them feeling good on top, happy, fulfilled. But if we can't feel fulfilled doing those things, then they're probably not for us. But it is hard. And that's why having support, whether it's through a coach, a mentor, a good friend, or a partner who's going to be there with you through the experience, it is helpful to have somebody continue to nudge you in the direction of coming home to yourself and of your own heart and exploring your own desires and preferences. And again, like I said in the beginning of our conversation, like I'm somebody who is constantly assessing my preferences even and my inclinations and going how much of this is the real like deep me and how much of this is the me I've been taught to be and how do I want to play around with that? And again, the only way I've come to know myself more is by experimenting with how I live and how I do all the things from food to movement, to friendship, to relationship, to sex, to parenting and everything in between and going like what actually really does feel good to me. What do I really want to do? What do I want to call bullshit on forever? And I've done those things and it's been good and it's been liberating. And, and it's also made a lot of people very uncomfortable, but I feel much more comfortable and everyone else who's uncomfortable has the opportunity to experiment with and change the way they're living too Again, with partners, support, friends, coaches, mentors, whoever they need, I hope everyone can have support. And I know that, again, is, is a privilege that not everybody has and an opportunity not everybody has. But my wish is that all of us would get to know ourselves more so that they, we could be just less of the same thing and more interesting and more free and more liberated all around. And, and again, I work with women mainly around food and body, but it never stays there. And a lot of women come back to me after our first six months and are like, well, how about let's talk about relationships and and identity and gender. Let's talk about my job and where I want to live and my family dynamics. You know, let's let's explore these other things, because once we deconstruct one thing, then it's just like, let me deconstruct everything. You mean I don't actually have to go to grad school if I don't want to? You mean I might not actually need to continue in this relationship if it's not fulfilling to me? Like, what? 
people are shocked at the things that open up once they just begin to question one area of their lives around diet culture mm-hmm. or fitness obsession. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, so that brings up sort of the last thing that I wanted to ask you about. Um, and I don't know if vision is the right word, but sort of your vision of what you would love to see in life after recovery, like when it comes to specifically what we've been talking about, about the anti-diet stuff, because I think the, the, what do I want to say? The issue of identity, I think, is interesting where it's really easy to identify very strongly with eating a certain way or, you know, you mentioned a couple of examples, Whole30, other thing, right? Like not to throw any one specific thing under the bus, right. but, you know, it's easy to make something your brand, right? For lack of a better word. Like I'm someone who follows this. Like I see that with veganism, with lots of different things. And then for whatever reason, you transition out of it and then your brand becomes, you know, anti-diet. Like the, the clearest personal example for me was how strongly drinking was a part of my, and I, I don't use brand in like a money-making way, but you know what I mean? Of like course, yeah. part of my identity and then quitting drinking and getting started with running. And then like, it was basically like, and it was a coping mechanism for sure. It was the best that I could do at the time, sort of like a transfer of obsessions or a transfer of identity. And it's been interesting, right. you know, seven years out from quitting drinking, you know, a couple years out from really stopping running that like those, I, I don't feel like I need to have this like placeholder identity anymore in order to feel okay. And so I'm just curious in this space, sort of how you think about that of like letting go of perfectionism in recovery and being able to move through this work and not like be stuck in sort of like anti-diet body positivity land forever. Yeah. And this is a good, it's a good question. And it also hits on some of the things we already talked about too, of like, I, I don't know, just like maintaining some of these identities or needing to feel in a certain group or feel a certain way. Uh, but life is just much more free than that. Having to stick with things. I mean, I'm even thinking as you were talking about the fact that like, wow, if my identity was, I had to have my, like my podcast, my second season come out at exactly this time. Or if my identity is in my Instagram account and my followers there, if my identity is in how much, how many blog posts I do or how many newsletters I send out to my following, then that all gets called into question when your house is being knocked down and you're living with your parents and suddenly that there's not space for that anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and I'm using my personal example cause I've already shared it, but I think probably all of your listeners and you and, and I can come up with so many of those other instances where our identities, it was a good gut check almost of like, Oh, my identity is called into question. I've, I've known athletes who get an injury and they're like, who am I without this sport? Because I can't play it right now. I have to recover. Or, and certainly again, that, that works the same way with dieters and, and people who are over-exercising in, in the places and spaces that I work in and, and the women who come to me, the clients that come to me, because they often have become the identity of whatever way they're eating or moving, or they have identified with a specific diet or way of eating, or just as like the healthy person or the fit person. And that their entire like persona then gets called into question because they've attached it to these these concepts and these ideas that we start together to unravel and peel back the layers and be like, oh yeah, you like you see this here, like this is actually pretty anti-woman or anti-human or anti uh anti being in a large body or anti-fat or fat phobic. You know, like there's we start peeling back the layers and going like, oh, there's actually systemic oppression involved here. Like here's where there's other, here's where there's capitalism and industries and power at play that we begin to see. And so everyone starts noticing all of that, but then still having to reckon with, okay, like 
what am I going to do? So I've noticed that. So now I'm calling bullshit on that. So now I'm angry. So now I'm grieving. We're going to go through the regular grief process when you're losing an identity. It's like, you're going to go through all the stages of grief and, and working out who you, who you are on a deeper level or who you are now. And what happens for a lot of people is they become like, like you said, like the, the recovered personality of like the anti-diet body positive, like always up in this space, always like starting the Facebook groups and doing all the things and having the podcasts and the blogs. And, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. I personally think there's a lot of people already who have already created really powerful, wonderful, uh, resources in all of those areas that I just listed, great podcasts, great groups and, and resources for people who are in recovery. And when you are in recovery, these these spaces, these resources are so necessary. We need a place to go where we can say, who is just getting like the, you know, who is just getting the veil torn from their eyes, like with diet culture too? Like who is, whose world is being rocked by the fact that like, oh, actually your body hates when you only feed it lettuce? Like, oh, like who, who is feeling like maybe rest and recovery is a concept I never even knew of that my body would benefit from that my personality, my emotions, my mind, like all of a sudden there's all these things people are learning and like, Oh, the world is against me. And diet culture is this big machine and monster that wants to kill me. And it's, it's great to know these things and to understand like what's behind them and to see it, to be able to pick out like, Oh, there's diet culture at play again. Like there is, there are beauty standards at play again. There's fat phobia at play again. It's so important to have the places and spaces and resources where these things are being talked about. It absolutely is. But if we stay there and we, that's the only thing that we now think about, invest our time and in, invest our energy in, in a way, and I share this with my clients a lot, like in a way, diet culture is still kind of one because you're still stuck. Now mm -hmm. you're just stuck making it the enemy. And it's not to say that it's not an enemy. And it's not to, again, say that people in the process of recovery, I mean, it's one of the first things I do is point my clients towards resources, towards other practitioners who have other areas, whether it's on Facebook or social media or accounts or blogs or newsletters that I think are really valuable. Of course, I'm going to point my clients there and say, get all the resources you can be in the communities that make you feel comfortable and safe to have these conversations, to explore letting go of dieting making peace with food, making peace with your body, that's important. But at the same time, there comes a time in just about every mentorship I have with my one-on-one -on -one clients where I'm also going like, yeah, if you just want to listen to like a missing and murdered podcast, it's cool. Like you don't have to only ever listen to um, food and body podcasts or like, mm -hmm. you know, like if you just want to delve into this, uh, a cooking class, cause you're really excited about that, go do that. If you want to explore this art class or, you know, acting lessons or take this, you know, do this new thing with your job or start dating, like do whatever you want to do. Don't, you don't feel like you have to now exist in this anti-diet body positive space where it becomes your new identity. And that's all you're ever talking about. And that's the lens that you're only ever seeing from. I want it to always be a part of people's lens and worldview. Obviously I want them to be critically thinking and see where these systems and capitalism are at play against them, because that's, that's a great way being informed is a great way to protect yourself and to create the boundaries you need to keep yourself feeling and functioning well and living autonomously. But you're not really empowered and living freely if you're constantly in reaction to the thing that hurt you in the first place. Mm. So there's got to be, you know, there's got to be more beyond that. I want people to like embrace their dreams and their excitement and 
And if it's bouncing from thing to thing, like it seems like you and I do, then I want them to do that because that's what's going to be most fulfilling. If it's them finding out that they have, that there's a career or a partnership or a place that they want to move to or something that they want to see or exploration that they want to do, I want them to do that and absolutely have anti-diet body positive mindsets as a part of their existence, but not as who they are and not as how they constantly have to show up in the world. Yeah, I love that. That's so well said. And I think that's a really good place to start to wrap up. So as you know, the way that we end these are with some hopefully fun, rapid fiery questions. Um, basically, all eight guests this season are answering the same seven questions that were put together by the Patreon community, the f- wonderful folks who support and fund the show. So if you're down to answer seven random questions, that's what we're going to do. Okay, I'm excited to find out what they are. <laughs> I know I'm always on the fence of should I tell the guests what they are, uh, you know, no. beforehand, but I like the idea of rapid fire, like random questions on the spot. I so. do too. Um, all right, cool. So the first question is about money. When it comes to money, what's one thing that you purposefully don't spend much on? And then on the flip side, what's one thing that's a totally worthwhile splurge for you? <laughs> I purposefully do not spend money on makeup. And skincare and face stuff, uh, beauty maybe is that. I purposely don't spend money on that just because it's not something that I value a lot or take a big interest in. So I mean, I have like a moisturizer that I like, uh, and I love to wear mascara, but you'll never catch me ever in lipstick or like just tons of other makeup or doing all these rollers and this and that to your face. And it's not to say that those things are wrong or like somebody who does those is wrong. It's just not my thing. And so I've purposely decided like, look, I win. I don't like this stuff and it's also super expensive. So I don't have to spend money on it. And, um, as far as what I do think, uh, is a useful way to spend money always for me, it's experiences. So whether that's like a really delicious restaurant or, traveling or going on some sort of adventure where I'm happy to spend money on experiences that are going to create memories and life lessons and help me to learn more about myself and whoever I am experiencing them with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's one thing that you really love about yourself? One thing I really love about myself is I am extremely honest. So, I mean, to the point where like I, might explode if there's something that needs to be spoken that nobody is speaking. Like, I'm like, just say it. Like, let's just <laughs> say, it. you know, like, but, but what I, but I value truth and honesty so much. And I'm, I'm just as honest to be like, whoops, I was wrong. Or I really messed up there. Or, you know, like the, I did not mean for it to have the impact that it did. And I'm sorry. And I'll fix it. Like I'm, I'm quick to say those things too. Cause I'm honest there too with like, I am a human. I am not perfect. I mess up a lot. But I, I do think that one thing that I value about myself and I certainly value in others is the ability to just tell the truth and let that be okay. I love the way that you phrased that answer because it like, I think sometimes this idea of, you know, truth telling or authenticity can have sort of like a being on a moral pedestal type of thing. And like for you to note what's I think so important that the other side of being someone who values honesty is being willing to be like, yo, I fucked up, you know, and that oh, yeah. that's a huge part of it that I think is really undervalued and under discussed. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, <laughs> what's a recent shift or decision that you've made that you feel like has had a big impact in your life? Mm. Uh, I really honestly think the shift that we've made to just go for it, 
build the house that will be our long-term space and the space that will be for our daughter long-term, obviously our whole family, but looking at her beyond the years when most kids pick up and leave, I think that that it's had a lot of impact again, just immediately as you and I have talked about throughout this conversation and me learning more about myself and me putting, you know, my actions where my mouth is in terms of creating margin and space for me and what I need and being okay to take up that space and take up that time and not be as productive. And also just having these experiences with my parents and, and yes, both of us are, have disrupted lives. We're all up in their space and in the spaces that they've let us in, we're living out of Tupper. Like my clothes are in big Tupperware storage containers. Like it's not glamorous, but it's been really beautiful also to live with my parents. And it's something that a lot of people don't have the opportunity to do. And I've, I've really, I value that. I love that my kids get to be with their grandparents that I get to see and live adult life alongside of my mom and dad, which is not something that everybody gets to do. And I know to moving into our home in the next month and a half and being able to create the sort of space and environment we want to, not just for us, but for others around us is something I think will have long-term positive effects for our family and beyond, I hope. Mm -hmm. Looking back, what's one decision in your life that at the time felt incredibly hard for you to make? Mm. Decision that at the time felt incredibly hard. Okay. This is easy. Um, at first I didn't feel like it was easy. And then I'm like, Oh yeah, that big thing. I think a a decision that felt incredibly hard at the time for, for me to make, it was a decision I made along with my husband. And again, if other things that we've already talked about here, just being candid with each other about where we were at and the questions we were having led us to have a pretty profound deconstruction of faith and, and religion and the way that we had been brought up. And even so, so far as to say we had been leaders of a church community and began to question <laughs> a lot of the beliefs and understandings and lived behaviors of that space and had to had to like call bullshit and on ourselves and on those those ideas and on those concepts and begin to question and deconstruct and that was something that was really really hard i think anything this can this also applies to dieting and the idea of dieting for health and exercise for health. And we get all wrapped up in this like morality. Well, let's say immortality, the idea of immortality and what will save me and the fear of really our own mortality, the fear of death. And that's something that comes into play with faith too. So faith and and health in that way can be very similar where we start to question these concepts around those ideas and then go, okay, so what does that mean for me? And so because of that, that was really scary to be like all these things I'd been taught as a child to always believe and um, these concepts that everyone just assumed to be true. I've questioned in so many other areas of my life, like, is that true? And who says? And here there was this really big thing that had, you know, lifelong and beyond life, if you're believing that, uh, consequences or results for us, should we decide to take the path we did? And so it was very difficult and it, it called a lot into question about who we are as people and how we do feel connected and a part of this bigger thing called life and humanity. But it was really, really good. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to hold myself back from asking follow-up questions, but that could be a potentially interesting conversation for us to have at another point, because right? I definitely sure. am, am interested in that. Um, so next question, if anything were possible, what's one of your big dreams or fantasies? <laughs> it's 
It's so funny because I I put like dreams and fantasies, like ideas on my website just as, so people could get to know me more. And a lot of them are happening. Like this whole like building the house, even starting a podcast is one of the things like I always wanted to do. Um, but, and I just do, um, I like checking things off my list. I think that one of my big dreams and fantasies would be to travel the world. Uh, again, hopefully I would love to travel with my entire family, meaning my husband and and my three kids, but thinking of, I, I often think of older age, knowing that unlike a lot of other families where the children leave at 18, 20, uh, and parents are empty nesters and they like get their traveling in or whatever it is they decided to do if they've had a, a family where they've had children and, and kind of lived this sort of life. My husband and I know that that's not in the cards for us. Like there's no empty nest for us. And so we've had to create these new dreams. And we often laugh about like putting three rockers on our wraparound porch at our house. Cause our daughter will be there. And so we've often talked about traveling is something we both really want to do. So a dream of mine, it may seem simple. It's nothing big, but I'd love to see the world, but I'd love to see it with our daughter and through her eyes because she really is so amazing and, and teaches us so much about life and curiosity and simplicity so having, we always, we talk about like, maybe we could hire somebody who could travel with us and they would get to like travel the world, but they could also like be with her. And so we could have time, just the idea of exploring and not letting our, our circumstances and the gift of having our daughter in, in any way ever be perceived as a hindrance or stopping us from doing what we want to do and the dreams that we have, but making her a part of them. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, the next question is about books, which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Ah, uh, this is so hard. So, um, why am I, I'm forgetting. Okay. So I love young adult fiction in general. And yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> like all the YA. And I'm like, I don't really know if it's like had this like profound life impact on me, except for the fact that I think that there's something really beautiful about, about delving into stories of humanity at that very simple level, like young adult, like it's mainly teenagers and going through what they're going through and being able to so relate, even though I'm 35, because we're all human and we all really have those same same desires and fears and insecurities pop up. I, and I, I just love YA. So that's not, there's not really anything profound about that, except for that. It, again, it just helps me to relate to other humans and and to notice and, and to see that connection that we all have to each other. There is a young adult book called by her last name's O'Neill, Louisa, Louise O'Neill called asking for it. And it's a, it's basically the premise. It's about a girl who goes to a party and you know what, if like, it, it's not, it doesn't end the same way. For instance, like 13 reasons why I read that book too, before it became a, a Netflix series, but it doesn't end the same way, but I would say it's along the same lines of, of kind of going like, well, did, did she ask for it? Like, wasn't, isn't this what she expected would happen of her? And I think that it's a great book for people to stop and assess rape culture and the way that our society has been designed for women to constantly have to be responsible for other people and, and not just women, because women aren't the only people who get raped. But uh, uh, in this instance, in this book, that's who it was. But to be constantly the only ones held responsible for what happens to them and how other people take advantage of them or traumatize them. Mm -hmm. so I, it was just a good, it was just a good book. Young adult, really no big deal. Um, in terms of like, it's like not some big, uh, 
what do I want to say? It's it's just not like a a self-help book or something, I guess, is where my mind goes to. And I'm like, books that have changed my life. And I'm trying to think of self-help books. And any, I mean, of course, uh, Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff is a book that I've talked about before on my own podcast. It's a book I recommend to all of my clients that is kind of in the help, self-help category. But I think it's so important because more than being self-help, it's just self-honoring, self-acknowledging, which I love. And, um, and then if we're going to get into the space of the work that I do, Health at Every Size or Body of Truth are great books for people to really begin to call into question the things they thought they knew about health as it relates to weight and diet and about the diet industry, about the capitalistic side of of diet culture and how that permeates to all other areas of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'll put links to all those in the show notes. And yeah, I certainly am never looking for like self-help books, hence saying like any genre. Cause I think oftentimes we get our best insights, our life lessons, like oftentimes through fiction, it doesn't have to be, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Through something else. So yeah, I love the range of your recommendations. And the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I think, <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry, everybody, but what I would say would be to just spend some time, just take, uh, just take an hour if you want to, maybe a whole day, a week, if you're able to call into question the things that you do and find out and ask yourself and get curious about why you do them. Because you're probably going to find that there's several things you do, eat, ways you move, people you spend time with. Uh, ways you spend your time that are very, that are more culturally constructed or environmentally uh, community based ideas of how you should act than how you actually truly want to, or what feels a deeper right and authentic to you. So I think spending some time just really observing yourself again, being that anthropologist of you, like I discussed earlier is such a fun practice, such a revealing practice and can, can really change your life. I mean, it's going to give you lots of opportunities to go, huh, what if I just do something different? So my call to action would be spend some time observing your desires, your preferences, and the things you always do and calling into question whether or not that's what you really want to keep doing. Yeah, that's awesome. So what's the best place for people to find you and your work and to say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? I do. I love Instagram. That's like that's where I love to spend my time. I'm not much a fan of other places and, and uh, social media platforms, but I do like Instagram. I have the other ones. You can find me there. Sure, come say hi, but I may not respond or be very regular there. Instagram, I am pretty frequent. Usually once a day, I'm there. I love talking to people. I love having the behind the scenes, like DMs. I'm about it. Like I will engage with people. Uh, I'm not just... I'm not just somebody plopping content on Instagram and walking away. I really do like to engage. So that my website is louieats.com and my Instagram account is louieats.com spelled out. So L-U-E-A-T-S-D-O-T-C-O-M. So you can find me at either of those places. It's the best way to contact me. You can email me straight from my website if you want to. Pretty simple and easy that way. But I'm definitely somebody who loves making the connections and I will pop in and say hi and DM you back and things like that. So uh, absolutely, if anybody resonates with anything I said and wants to talk more or uh, follow along with what I'm doing and what I'm up to, that's a great way to get in touch. Awesome. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Lou, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Of course.
And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music, which is awesome, and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Ellie. Hi, Ellie. Hi, Nicole. You ready to answer five random questions and uh, tell me all about your life? <laughs> oh, I feel like I was just been uh, built up for this. This is great. <laughs> You're like, I'm ready. I'm ready to spill everything. Yeah. Um, so my favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now? So I was actually thinking about this last night when I was just thinking about the week and because I knew this is one of my favorite questions. So, but to be honest, I'm really obsessed with just keeping things simple. I feel like my life has been kind of chaotic at some points and that has made me really anxious. But in the past year or so, I've really tried to dial back my life and like not be as keeping up with the Joneses or not be as, I don't know, whatever. I preconceived notion of what I thought I should do. And so just keeping things simple, like even just in my entire life, I'm just obsessed with making things a lot easier for myself, which might be a cop out in this world, but whatever, I'm going with it. No, I love that. Can you give like one example maybe of something that you've simplified that's been really helpful? Well, um, at the beginning of the year, actually, so I live in upstate New York, so it's kind of cold, but at the beginning of the year, I uh, moved out of my apartment and I started living in a conversion van and it was one of the most random things that probably I could have ever done. But to be honest, it made tons of sense in my brain that like, I am a very, I have a very full life in that I'm not, I don't like calling it busy because busy is negative to me, but I could, cause I like doing all the things that I do, but I found that I was never home. Like I would have this apartment that I was paying five to $600 a month for and a parking spot and all this stuff. But like, I was never there. And it just made me realize that like, maybe I could downsize a little bit more. And then I had all this crap, all this stuff that like I would, and, and you know, you, you wear the same shirt like every day. So it's like, do I really need all this stuff? And then I was just like, maybe I should just start to simplify. And then sort of the stars aligned for me. And I ended up January 7th moving into a van and I've been there since, and it's been great. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to hold myself back from asking you like a thousand more questions <laughs> about van <laughs> stuff. So maybe that can be a separate conversation. <laughs> oh, definitely. Um, what's something that feels frustrating for you right now? Maybe like one particular thing or area of your life that you're finding challenging? Um, well, sort of. So I am a pretty big runner and I'm, and I've done, I like you, I love being in the trails and on the outdoor and outdoors. And so, but that's been just frustrating. And this sounds like such a small world problem, but I'm having like an issue deciding, um, kind of finding what gear works the best for me. And so that's a very small first world problem, but like, that's what's on my mind because the chafing under my armpits right now still hurts. And that's all I can feel. And things on my feet still hurt because the running that I did this past weekend, I got some blisters. And so what's frustrating right now is that I'm not also taking the time to figure out what works for me. So that's a little bit frustrating, but you know what? I feel pretty blessed in that it, that is what's frustrating that I don't have 
too many huge issues with other parts of my life and that I've, you know, so that's, that's pretty much what's frustrating right now. <laughs> yeah. Blisters and chafe are real. I have the struggle is real. I hear you. I've been doing a lot more. Um, I mean, at the time of this recording, a lot more hike training and yeah, the lower back chafe and the blisters I'm like, Oh yeah, I remember I'm at that season again. I have to wait until my body like turns into a machine and then I don't have these things anymore. But yeah, I totally hear you. Um, yeah, it's like my feet are like leather, so they're getting there. But it's just like, I couldn't believe I started like bleeding from my armpits. And I was like, oh, my God, what's going on? And then you get in the shower and it hurts so much. Yeah, the chafe is one of those things where it seems like it's not that bad. And then it really you just like can't get out of how painful it is. It's so bad. Oh, yeah. What's something that a lot of people seem to care about that you just can't get into or that you just don't really care about? Oh, Lord. Um, you know, probably... I know it goes back to what I said earlier, but I don't really want a bigger house. I don't really want to make more money. And I feel like maybe I should want that. It's one of those things like, should I want these things? Should I be like striving to make more money at my job, striving to get like automatically after I lived in the van for a month, somebody was like, well, your next van can be. And I'm like, damn it. I like my van. I don't (laughs) want another one. Like I want this one and I have this one. And I like, I worked really hard to like live in this one. And so it's sort of just, I don't want to make I don't, I don't want to like structure my life around making more money. Like I don't, I never want to get paid to run. I never want to get paid to read. I don't want to get paid for things that are my hobbies, which I understand some people's side hustles that make their money that, or their, or their hobbies that do make them money. That's great for them. But I feel like if I started to make money for my hobbies, then it is a job and I would start to hate it. So yeah, I guess I just don't want to make my hobbies, my job. Yeah. I I love everything about that answer. It's really refreshing to hear someone say, I don't really care about making more money. I'm not trying to monetize these things. Like there's just something in that that feels like very, very honest. And so I love that. It's a great answer. Um, Thanks. What's your secret weapon in your healthiest relationship? So if you think of one of your healthiest relationships, what's something that you do really well in that relationship? I'm really good at letting um, things that people say sort of roll off my back and not taking things personally. And I used to take everything pretty personally, even if not outwardly, but inwardly, I would like turn it into something, this ball of anxiety or like ball of hate that I would just like, somehow it would come out unhealthily in myself. But I really tried to work hard, especially because with working with family relationships and now they're so good. And I think one of the reasons that is, is because I just worked at like, okay, things that they say, you just can't take it personally. And you just, it's one of those things where I have a father that I love him to death, but some of the things he says are not PC, are not like exactly the greatest, but letting things roll off your back because you love those people and you'd rather have relationships with them than fight everything they say. I think that's been a really, really helpful thing in having healthy relationships for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the last question, what's one specific thing that you wish that people were more open and honest about? You know, I, I don't really know. I guess I'd rather just, I feel like people are really open and honest with the social media that we have. And sometimes I'm like, I don't care about that. And I think, <laughs> uh, you know, or just, and actually that's been, I've reflected that back on myself. Like maybe I just, like I got off Facebook, like I, maybe I just don't need to like unfollowing people. I don't need to see the stuff that I don't want to see because some people are really open and honest. Like, hashtag I love trails hashtag this. And so, you know, I think people are pretty open and honest and I, 
and and that's good for them. But sometimes I just don't care. Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting answer. Um, so you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you are one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible. Since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season for which I'm very grateful. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show and what you love most about being in our community. So I started listening to the show um, through actually Julia Hanlon's Running on Ohm. I loved your guys' episodes. And so then I found your podcast. And every every one is just like a truth bomb. And, I'll, and I just find myself like I'm either running or like doing something else. And I'll just like, yes, that's so true. And like just all this stuff. And it's actually opened my eyes, especially this past season, to like, you know, different the way different people live, like racism and asexuality that was a big one that i didn't know much about and now i can like just oh that, that's why this maybe that's why this person is okay just be more con help me be more conscious about how other people live and just not to make assumptions and then when i did move into my van i realized that i would be saving money in the rent and internet and things like that and so i was like i can afford i like remembered i can afford now to support things that i want to support. So I started donating to like some, like my uh, friend's political campaign. And then I wanted to support you in the little way that I could, because it does, it has made a huge difference in my life. And so, yeah, I, I look forward to every season. I look forward to the, everything in the community. Thanks. I mean, I love what you said too, about um, being open to hearing about people whose experiences are different from yours. Cause that's like such a through line of what we're trying to do here. So it's always really lovely to hear when that has been true and has been impactful. So I love that. Um, will you share also um, in case any folks want to reach out where I know you said upstate New York, but where you live and maybe a social media link, if you feel comfortable with that. Sure. So I live in Ithaca, New York. So it's beautiful here, especially now. The winter is kind of <laughs> fun. But um, so yeah, I live in upstate New York. And I have a blog uh, called eatrunpavement.com. And then my Instagram, though, is pretty is where I have the most fun. That's my favorite. And Twitter is the same one. It's Gazelli. It's, uh, so it's a play on my name, G-A-Z-Z, and then E-L-L-I-E, my name. Perfect. So, yeah. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I honestly can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe we can even record a future outro together like this one. That would be great. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 